This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. You know, if companies are sending me seed, that's a good sign because that means that they believe in their product and they're willing to put it in trials. I think after one or two more years of this type of thing, it's going to shake out to see what companies are actually legitimate breeding companies and which ones are just people randomly pollinating stuff without having any background in breeding or (laughs) genetics at all. Uh, welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host, Jerry Clark, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Extension in Chippewa County, serving as an agricultural agent. And my co-host today is Ashley Olson. So Ashley, today our get, we'll be talking about uh, CBD and the essential oils and those kind of things. And I'm uh, interested in getting my head straight around this topic since there's a lot of discussion around the different oils that come with industrial hemp. And our guest today will be Dr. Shelby Ellison uh, with the Department of Horticulture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's a faculty member and an assistant professor. And uh, Ashley, I was just in my hometown of Chippewa Falls this last week, and I saw a sign that said on one of the uh, pharmacies in town that said full full extract CBD. And I just thought it was interesting that we hear all these different oils and stuff, and I'd never seen full extract before, but that's another um, avenue to this, apparently. Yeah, you know, I've seen some signs for that, too, and I guess I don't know what the difference is between full extract or partial extract. (laughs) Are we pulling part of the flower? Are we only taking this part, a a petal? I don't know. And... um, so I was trying to do a little bit of research when I, after I saw that sign as I was driving too, when I was heading into La Crosse, there's a couple of uh, hemp stores that are conveniently located on each side of the highway. So whether you're heading into town or out of town, you can stop at either one. They're on both sides of the road. And I was wondering the same thing, what, what that means, because um, they did say by having the whole plant extract now, there could be even more health benefits than just, than just the partial extraction. Yeah, so I find this whole uh, this discussion will be great today with with uh, Shelby and uh, find out exactly what some of this stuff all means. So, welcome and, Shelby. And oh, thing, go ahead, yeah, Ashley. Welcome, no, well, we welcome Shelby. But uh, as as we get started, you know, really, how do we actually say the true word? Uh, CBD is the short term for how do you say that again? Cannabidiol, cannibal, cannibal. <laughs> We'll find out from Shelby. <laughs> so welcome, Shelby. All right, there we go. So welcome, Shelby. And like I said, as Ashley and I are trying to introduce this topic, there's a lot of different avenues we can go with this. But, um, you know, what is this oil industry with, with industrial hemp and all the different, uh, we hear about CBD mainly, but uh, apparently there's all kinds of oils that come along with industrial hemp. Yeah, so thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk about hemp and essential oils today with you all. So um, when you're talking about essential oil in hemp, you're specifically talking about hemp that is uh, typically female-only production. So you're only growing female hemp plants and the unpollinated flower of a female hemp plant is it produces these structures that look like tiny little mushrooms called trichomes. And inside those trichomes is where the various um, essential oils are. And there are actually over a hundred different cannabinoids that can be found in those trichomes. But the ones that you hear of commonly today, so CBD or the cannabidiol and CBG, that's cannabigerol, those are, found in a higher abundance. So we have cultivars that are able to produce those compounds in the 10 to 15% on a dry weight basis. Um, And those also have been associated with a lot of preliminary results um, that there are favorable compounds for humans. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but those unpollinated female flowers 
uh, are what is harvested. So the plants are then dried and the flowers are removed from the plants. And then through various techniques, those oils are extracted from the flower, typically either using ethanol or carbon dioxide. Um, and what you're speaking about with that full extract, that means that all of the cannabinoids, so be it CBD or any of these very minor cannabinoids that are found in the flower are extracted together. So there's what's called an entourage effect that says that these cannabinoids, as well as terpenes, which are related to flavor and odor, um, work together to give you an entourage effect that's more um, pretty much the altogether it's more powerful than any one isolated compound. So that's what a full spectrum product is providing is that higher cannabinoid, typically CBD, and then the other cannabinoids in small minor quantities. So something like that, you'd kind of consider, I guess, the, the total is greater than the sum of the parts and that kind of thing, where if you can get the total extract, you're getting a, a, a few more um, benefits, so to speak. But yeah, and that, that's the other thing is, you know, what what is the, um, where's the market going with this? You know, um, are, are the, is this full extract kind of the, where it's headed um, or is CBD still where we're at? You know, it's, well, a lot of the products that you see marketed as CBD do still have some of these minor cannabinoids and terpenes in the product. Um, so like if you see something that says CBD, it might say full spectrum CBD. That means that it includes these other minor compounds. It's very interesting because the market is kind of driving this in two separate directions where um, people that are interested in this product for the more holistic like viewpoint of it being better when you are ingesting all of these compounds together, they want that kind of full spectrum product. But that leads to a little bit of uncertainty in the final concentration of everything. And it's a little bit harder to study the effects, whereas in controlled scientific studies, you typically wanna know the exact concentration and know exactly what you're studying. So when you want a very particular dose of something and you want it to be exact every time, then people are more interested in isolating these compounds and then getting the exact concentration right. So I see that there's an increase in um, gummies or things that are like little single serving that have the exact same concentration every time. Um, so, so that is increasing in, um, I think, in popularity just because people want to be a little bit more sure of what they're ingesting than just like a, taking a dropper from a bottle and squirting away. <laughs> <laughs> so... Is there different, um, say, studies as far as, and we're really wanting to talk more, uh, you know, being here today on this podcast about the growing, the production regulations of the CBD, but since we're talking right now about the different concentrations versus whole plant, partial plant extract, are there, is there any medical research that is happening right now for the CBD, I mean, we're talking about some of the side effects for humans um, and or animals. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what's interesting is when hemp became federally legal in the 2018 farm pill is kind of when um, federal research grants became available to study these compounds. So if you think about the timeline of that, that means in 2018, then there's funding released. So you apply for that funding and then you get it a year later in 2019. So, and, and then COVID happens. So a lot of these like preliminary studies are really preliminary still. There's only one year of data. So there's a lot of kind of preclinical or animal-based studies looking at things like related to CBD or the other, as I mentioned, common cannabinoid is CBG, looking at things of how uh, they relate a lot of pain management studies, so topical pain management, as well as um, looking at things like related to uh, anxiety or depression. And um, of course, where this all came from, the first um, really concrete medical evidence that we had was that CBD is very effective in several seizure-related seizure um, uh, disorders, so Dravet's syndrome. There's a lot of these um, seizures that are popular or <laughs> seizures that are common in um in children and they found that cbd is actually 
um, very effective at reducing the number of seizures. And so there's a product called a, um, Opedialex, Epedialex, which is an FDA approved drug for the treatment of these seizure disorders. So that's, that's kind of the, the furthest along in proving that this has an actual clinical effect and can help manage some diseases or disorders. But there's many others in the pipeline, but they're going to need two or three or four years of replicated, you know, blind, double blind studies to, to make sure that they're actually doing what they propose that they're doing. So, so is CBD, let's just take that one um, uh, compound for, for starters, is mm -hmm. that, 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 would that be uniform across the board, regardless of the variety that, you know, a grower would grow with, um, if you extract CBD out of one plant, is that chemical the same? I mean, there, there could be different concentrations. I, I would understand the difference in varieties there, but is CBD, CBD, you know, worldwide or across the country, is there a standard measurement for that? Yeah, so it, it will have the same, I mean, C CBD it will be the same across the board, no matter where you extract it from, it's the same chemical structure. The only um, small difference is that the plant produces something called CBDA, which is the acetic version of that chemical. And only through heat um, does that convert from CBDA, CBD to, sorry, CBDA into CBD. So um, what the plant is producing and what we are consuming or animals are consuming later on are slightly different versions. And that goes through a heat process. But pretty much every form that we take in CBD as humans is after some sort of heated process. So, so that CBD is what we're typically ingesting. Are there certain varieties that, that are emerging that would be great as far as market potential for CBD? Yeah, so that's one of the main things that I'm looking at um, a little bit last summer and a lot this summer is really understanding what is available, what cultivars are available. And there are, there are different ways that people plant um, for essential oil production. They, as I mentioned, you only want females. So you either are planting clones, which were cut off of female plants, so they're guaranteed to be female, or you can plant feminized seed, which has gone through um, a process to ensure that all of the seeds that are planted are female or you can plant regular seed, which is going to be a mixture of males and females, but it'll result in a lot of labor later when you have to pull out all of those males. But so we're, we're looking at, um, right now we have 44 different cultivars that we're comparing to, oh, <laughs> to <Okay>. see, <laughs> um, we're looking at these 44 cultivars in Wisconsin to see how they all perform relative to each other. So which ones have the highest amount of CBD while staying compliant under that 0.3% THC, as well as what their final yield is, how they can handle Wisconsin climate. We're at a, very, a fairly high um, latitude, so we need something that's not gonna flower in early October because there's no way it will finish in time. So that will be a really good uh, chunk of data to figure out what performs well here and, and really understand what is going to be um, a good variety to recommend to people to grow moving forward, where it's going to have a high enough concentration of that essential oil that it'll be marketable to a processor, um, but still be compliant and still grow well here. Yeah. Um, just for, for podcast listeners, we lost our uh, co-host Ashley for a minute here. So I'll try to write the ship for a minute until, uh, until Ashley gets on. Looks like she lost power as a storm went through her house. So, you know, the power of COVID-19 still, still rules. And when you get a thunderstorm, it doesn't work. Your internet doesn't work real well. So we'll, we'll continue on Shelby and hopefully Ashley can rejoin us. Um, so uh, regarding some of the, the research you're doing, um, I know I'm part of, of one with Oregon State University with Carl Dooley in Buffalo County and a number of us on our Wisconsin Extension uh, Alternative Crops team. Uh, but could you just explain maybe some of the, uh, uh, with the Oregon State study as well as what you're doing at, at UW-Madison as far as trying to get some more local data that we can help some Wisconsin farmers with? Yeah, definitely. So. 
So a lot of these studies um, are, are relating to just figuring out how varieties perform here because a lot of these initial uh, varieties were produced out in the Pacific Northwest. So either in Washington, Oregon or in Colorado. And so a very different climate. So we wanna see how they perform here. So we're collecting data um, kind of all throughout the growing season, how the plant is growing over time, trying to figure out what's gonna be the best spacing. Is it good to have tighter plants or is that going to produce more disease later in the season? What's, how is that going to affect the yield? So we're also kind of characterizing what disease pressure we see, what insect pressure we see. Is there any difference between varieties for that disease pressure? Um, and then really capturing that flowering time period, figuring out when these plants start flowering, when they finish, and tracking that cannabinoid content throughout the flowering period, because um, that's going to be a really important recommendation is to tell farmers, okay, we tested these varieties in a few different locations. It seems like if you test at this point, then it will be, um, it, it's going to be compliant. We, we feel pretty confident. Um, so other things that we're looking at are there are cultivars that are auto flowering varieties, which means that they will flower um, after a certain amount of time. So it's not dependent on the day length. So typically these are very early flowering. They might start flowering after um, 45 days and finish after 75 days. So that might be something that's better for a very Northern climate where there's not really long growing season, but they tend to um, yield less. That also might be a good system if you're doing greenhouse production. And then that's compared to photo period varieties, which uh, need a certain amount of day length to start to flower. So typically when you get below 14 hours of sunlight is when you start to see a lot of these cultivars flower. So I've been of my 44 varieties looking at um, flowering starting in early August and I still have some that haven't flowered yet. And then with, you mentioned this Oregon state trial. So that is part of an S1084 multi-state hatch project. So that's great because we're growing those same six varieties for that trial in the like over 10 locations across the country. So it's gonna be really interesting to see how they perform and compare that data across the board. And we're all collecting everything in a very uniform fashion. So it should be very um, able to compare, we'll be able to easily compare that data. So um, that, that's gonna be a nice data set and that will probably continue on until next year. So we have at least two years of data with that. Um, yeah, but, but really just getting a good grasp on in multiple locations, either across Wisconsin or locations across the country, how the same varieties perform in different environments and how they compare to each other to make better recommendations for what does well in certain regions. Is, um, is planting date or those kind of, I suppose it depends if you're getting seed versus transplants, but um, is the research looking at planting date or any, any of those agronomic type of things at this point? Yeah, there, there is more of that. Um, so we have some colleagues um, in extension that are looking more at kind of the grain and fiber types of hemp. And they've done some more of that agronomic um, analysis looking at planting date and uh, row width and spacing and uh, different nitrogen levels. We have we have a little bit, I, I have one small fertility trial looking at different levels of nitrogen and how that affects cannabinoid content throughout the flowering period. It is a little bit different just because of the transplants. And I think that that will be definitely something to do moving forward next summer. But it is interesting because you, um, yeah, you, you can kind of plant whenever you want when you have transplants. It's just, they'll get a little bit bigger. You don't want that, um, that transplant to get any sort of um, get root bound when before you transplant it. So you have to make sure that you're either uh, increasing your your transplant as you have it in the greenhouse or you have to get it into the field. But um, those are definitely studies that we'll look at moving forward. So from a, um, a, a testing standpoint, so if we look at this as um, I'm a farmer, I want to grow, okay, 
I mean, this is what we answered for a question and extension. Uh, we still are, but for the first, in 2018 and especially last year, a lot of questions about, I want to grow industrial hemp. And of course it's, it's regulated. And so we went, kind of went down that path. Um, but maybe just take, give us a, a snapshot, uh, Shelby, if um, regarding the, the the difference in this, uh, what, t, you know, these, uh, the content of THC versus CBD. And they think, well, CBD is marijuana and all this kind of stuff. There's all this bad information out there where you can get mixed up in, in what all this means. But uh, you mentioned industrial hemp for seed and fiber, and we're growing that completely different than we are for, um, for the essential oils. So, um, Maybe just kind of go go down that path of of the difference between growing those two. Uh, you can be very brief about that because we do have an industrial hemp uh, grain and fiber podcast uh, that we did earlier. But just um, kind of look at that from a standpoint of of some of those uh, quick agronomics that that differences, and then how what that uh, that THC means as far as uh, with industrial hemp, some of that regulatory side of things. Sure. So I think I'll, I'll start with the regulatory question. So in the way that industrial hemp is defined is that it must have less than 0.3% THC on a dry weight basis. And the way that it was written into the 2018 farm bill was that was described as um, less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, which has like led to a lot of um, differences across states as they interpreted that that particular clause in the farm bill meaning whether we should be counting total thc or just delta 9 thc um so i i had talked a little bit about how the plant makes cbda the acetic, acetic version and then through heat it gets converted into cbd which is what we ingest as humans that exact same thing happens with thc the plant makes, makes a compound called THCA, and then through heat, that is converted into delta-9 THC. And that is what is the psychoactive compound that people associate with drug-type cannabis. Um, so some people interpreted the, the way that the 2018 Farm Bill was written that um, you only would include that THC, or that delta-9 compound when you're calculating 0.3% THC, um, which if you just harvest some flowers from a plant and test it, it that, hasn't, that haven't gone through a heat treatment, then almost every cannabis plant will be compliant. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is the way that we're extracting them, we're heating them up. So all of that THCA does get converted to Delta 9. And then you, you have that much higher THC level. So, so this is one thing that um, DACAP and, and all people that are working on the regulatory side are, are trying to convince everyone that, no, you have to use this calculation that includes THCA and Delta 9 THC to calculate your total THC. Um, with industrial hemp, so it, it could be that you're going for grain or fiber or for CBD. All of them fall under the definition of industrial hemp, which is just that legal definition. Some people consider industrial hemp to be more the grain and fiber because that's kind of what was being thought about in the 2014 Farm Bill when we were talking about bringing hemp back as a, a crop that people could grow. Back then, nobody was thinking about CBD. So some people like to call it just hemp if it's being grown for CBD and industrial hemp, if it's being grown for grain and fiber. But I must say that there's not an exact industry standard. <laughs> They're all industrial hemp. And after the 2018 farm bill, they kind of remove that word industrial and just call everything hemp. Um, so the, the second part of your question, just about the production systems that are involved in the different types of hemp that you can grow. So as I mentioned, um, growing for essential oil production, you're growing females only. Um, most of the time people right now are transplanting, so transplanting four or five week uh, old seedlings. However, the trial that we're all involved in um, with Oregon State University, that was actually direct seeded. And that's, I think, an interesting way that the industry might be moving forward is figuring out how to mechanize this a little bit more. So 
you remove some of the labor that's involved. Um, there are no labeled synthetic pesticides or herbicides, so figuring out how to deal with weeds is a major issue. So a higher planting density where you can choke out the weeds earlier on is desirable, and that might mean a higher planting density. <laughs> um, however, the spacing is, is dramatically different in most compared industrial essential oil compared to the industrial hemp side with grain and fiber. You're, you're typically planting like 2,000 plants an acre with essential oil production. So you might have um, four foot in row, five foot between row spacing in a typical production setting. Whereas with uh, growing for grain, you're gonna have 30, 40 pounds an acre and growing for fiber, you might have 60, 70 pounds of seed per acre. So a much higher density for the grain and fiber sides of things. And then the other thing is just the, the harvest is, is drastically different too with um, essential oil. You're, you're going through a lot of the times and manually chopping the plant at the base and then bringing it to a drying facility or a barn to dry it and bucket whereas the, the grain is just being harvested as most other grain systems are being harvested, you know, using some sort of combine system. And then fiber is still really getting worked out. There are some hemp specific um, pieces of equipment that are being developed, but really I think this year is gonna be the year for innovation for that as more and more people are interested in growing for fiber. So I'll be very curious to see some more, um, more, uh, thoughtful ways of harvesting and dealing with the fiber. Great. Oh, great. Thanks, Shelby. I see Ashley made it back. Her power's back on. Ashley Olson <laughs> is back. All right. <laughs> my voice is we're recording here. I had a bad feeling here. We, so we've got some, uh, you know, down here in Western kind of Southwest Wisconsin, we have some much needed rain happening again today and uh along with these great lightning strikes which took out some power but um you know jump back on back to what you're talking about and and the growing of, of the hemp and different trends and varieties and you were talking about the thc levels and what is legal so are there any trends developing across the whole state where we're seeing hemp that is testing above that level? There, are there any geographic trends? Is it soil related, weather related, anything like that that you're seeing? So as a geneticist, I say no. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> the primary trend still has to do with the cultivar um, more than as it relates to any sort of agronomic practice. So um, after one year of data, like looking at different nitrogen levels and its effect on cannabinoid production, we didn't see any significant difference between 0, 0,50, 100, and 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre for uh, the various cannabinoids. So we're repeating that study this year, but it, it definitely seems that you know, the fiber and grain varieties are very unlikely to ever reach that THC threshold. They also have very low CBD. But when you're trying to push the limits for the CBD production, the enzyme in the plant that converts CBG into CBD is very similar to the one that converts CBG into THC. So even if that enzyme is knocked out and you're not supposed to have any THC production, the enzyme is still leaky and it produces a little bit. So there's this ratio that's kind of the industry standard that the best cultivars that are available have a 30 to one ratio of CBD to THC. So that means if you have 10% CBD, you're gonna have 0.3% THC. So if you see um, certificate of analysis, so COAs that you get from these potency, they're testing the cannabinoid concentration of the plant, once you see things in the teens, I get very, very skeptical of how much THC is in there. And I wonder if they're only counting Delta 9 or what they're doing, because I have not seen any varieties that are better than that 30 to 1 ratio consistently. There might be one or two tests that you're like, wow, that was amazing. But consistently, I'm not seeing that. Um, we have a project where we're looking at, uh, we have farmers who are part of a testing program where they have to have at least two tests 
on their variety throughout the growing season and they're telling us a lot of their agronomic conditions of how they planted, what fertility they used, what irrigation, where they're located. So we can kind of see across the Midwest how the same variety is performing. Um, so hopefully that will shed some light on if there are any other things that are happening that are related to the cannabinoid production. I have seen one or two studies that relate to potentially cannabinoid production and drought. Um, that there's an increase in cannabinoids under drought conditions. That's the only thing that I've really seen in the scientific literature that kind of seems to have some truth behind it. Um, but again, we just need a few more years to kind of shake out some of these trends to figure out what's real and not. Um, and then the other thing I should mention is one of the reasons why people are excited about growing CBG is because that's like the the entry point into the cannabinoid or the uh, cannabinoid biosynthetic pathway. So that's like the first compound that's produced and pretty much it blocks everything from being produced down the pathway. So you can get really high concentrations of CBG without being worried about THC content. So that's one motivation behind why growers are growing these CBG varieties is they're less concerned that they're going to go hot in the field. Um, but these varieties are very, I mean, they're not varieties. They're very, very new and they're not very uniform. So uh, you're also going to see a, a lack of consistency across the board when farmers are growing these this early on. So um, that will be something to, to look forward to those cultivars and all cultivars improving in uniformity moving forward. So Shelby, as a geneticist, then since since you brought that up, <laughs> um, that, that that's your train. I mean, that's obviously where you, you, your your study is, and and you're an expert in that that area. Um, are we looking? Uh, is there um, breeding programs going on to try to you know, you know compare it to corn? But you know, if if this gets to be very standardized, or with with the varieties, if you plant this, you know you're you're going to be able to get this much CBG as far as, you know, the genetic potential. Um, we always say there's the genetic potential and then the environment screws all that up. Um, mm -hmm. So are there, are there breeding programs established now in the United States to kind of, or your shop or your lab to kind of start to look at um, maybe developing brand new varieties that grow shorter, taller um, oil content, that kind of thing? Yeah, there, there are. They're, they're all about five years old. So it's very interesting because it's so new. But um, a few of the states that had like jumped on after the 2014 Farm Bill, they have probably the longer program. So Colorado State and Cornell and University of Kentucky. Um, Kentucky's doing more of the agronomy work, but there's definitely some breeding programs in those states. And then there's a kind of some others, myself included, that are, are planning on doing some sort of breeding component in our project. But the majority of the breeding is happening right now in the private sector. Okay. So there are breeding companies that are, you know, have been breeding since the 2014 Farm Bill. And that's definitely where um, some of the best genetics are coming from. But they just need time to get that uniformity sorted out. And they also just need to, you know, when I ask for seed for variety trials and people send me seed, you know, if, if companies are sending me seed, that's a good sign because that means that they believe in their product and they're willing to put it in trials. I think after one or two more years of this type of thing, it's going to shake out to see what companies are actually legitimate breeding companies and which ones are just people randomly pollinating stuff without having any background in breeding or <laughs> genetics at all. <laughs> so um, it, it's going to take a little bit more time, but there's definitely some good players out there right now that are, are very well suited to create new uh, uniform, well-adapted varieties. And along those lines, are these varieties um, all being, um, then that are out there marketed uh, as organic? Are there any conventional varieties out there? And what's the outlook for organic versus conventional of CBG or D? Yeah, yeah. So because hemp um, was illegal for so long, all of the typical herbicides and pesticides and fungicides, um, 
there, hemp isn't labeled for any of those products that are out there right now that are commercially available, particularly synthetically derived products. There are some bioproducts that are that you can use on hemp, but it, it's the same thing. It's going to take a little bit to figure out if it's product if it's safe to use those products in hemp, particularly hemp grown for CBD or CBG or whatever cannabinoid production, because people are inhaling. <laughs> like these flower products that might be sprayed. So interestingly, a lot of hemp, it's not, it's not grown conventionally or organic. I mean, organic in the strict sense of being certified organic, um, there are very few people that are certified organic because just because you're not spraying your crop doesn't mean that you're organic, right? You have to have your field being grown under organic practice for more than three years and you have to go through the certification process and if you're using certain types of fertilizer it's not going to count so um Absolutely. there are a few people growing actually certified organic the people that are that's great there is actually a market for that people are very interested in organically certified um hemp for all types of hemp grain or essential oil or even for fiber-based products if People are talking about things like, you know, ecologically friendly clothing. <laughs> um, but the, there's a little bit of confusion out there with both producers and people buying these products that say that they're grown organically just because they're not spraying anything on them. So there's a huge problem with that because of the people who go through all the effort to actually get certified and what they're doing versus people who are just like slapping in the word organic on their product because they didn't spray it with anything. So it's, it's interesting. I, nothing is being grown as conventional as a lot of other crops grow because you can't put these products on. It will be interesting once some producers find out what it really takes to be certified organic and once more synthetically labeled products are available, kind of where the industry will go. I imagine for the grain and fiber production, you're probably going to see a lot more conventional production because it's very hard to grow <laughs> organically. Um, but I think with the cannabinoid or the essential oil production, you'll probably see a lot more true organically certified products because there is a market for that product. So with the CB or with the, the essential oil production then, um, and you mentioned it's, it's different because you, you have this spacing of five by five or you know, rows or so wide and, and plants are spaced so far apart. Um, what are producers doing or uh, for, uh, are they growing it under plastic? Are they mulching heavily? Uh, just what are some of the production practices you've observed? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on the acreage. So, um, you know, the, the three main things that I've seen are kind of, if you have smaller scale, you know, maybe one, two acres, people are using plastic culture, well, they'll, they'll lay plastic down and use that as a weed control. And then they might have bare ground between or, or put a cover crop down between the rows. Um, that seems to be pretty common, but that's also expensive and time consuming at the end of the season. And there's other things to consider with organic certification with that as well and removing that. Um, some people are just using cover cropping, so they're just, you know, transplanting directly. Maybe they'll like just till really small rows or rip some, uh, rip a line of soil and then transplant and they'll have a cover crop. And, and I've seen very mixed results using that method as well. Some people, it's great if you have a uniform cover crop and it's not, if it's actually, you know, clover and, and nicely <laughs> settled in and not a bunch of grasses invasively <laughs> coming into your cover crop that can work well. Um, and the third production system is just, um, you know, having completely just using mechanical cultivation. So are, there are these um, eco weeders where you can kind of ride over the top of the plant and cultivate within row up until maybe mid July. So the plant might be in the ground for six weeks or so. And, you, and then you just like hope that the plants will outcompete the weeds. But for that system, you want to have a pretty, pretty clean seed bed going into that, and you have to be very careful the first few weeks so you're, you stay on top of the weeds. I mean, you have to do that with lots of these systems. Um, and I should, with the cover crop, yeah, you're just mowing down weeds 
or, or your cover crop <laughs> um, every few weeks. So those are, I think, the three main production systems that I'm familiar with. The one that we're doing um, in Buffalo County with that essential oil trial, that was planted at a much higher density. Um, so yeah, you kind of have to just think about it when you're planting it, what your cultivation options are. If you can fit something um, between your row spacing that's going to be able to mechanically deal with the weeds. Yeah, and we've, um, uh, with the project we have in Buffalo County, that was, um, for listeners, that was planted with a drill. So we use seeds, those were not transplants. And so it'll be interesting to see what our, we're getting close to harvest for the autoflower uh, varieties probably here in this week. Um, of course, we're at the end of August here. So September is harvest month for a lot of these these varieties as we move towards uh, the first frost. How is it for frost? I mean, I guess what I've noticed in the uh, some of the fiber and hemp or fiber and grain trials we had here in Chippewa County, there's not a lot of uh, wildlife damage, doesn't seem to be insect pressure, these kind of things, and maybe it's just that new of a crop that they haven't discovered it. So. Yeah, last year um, I actually had plants in the field and they went through a hard frost and I was quite surprised. So as the plants reach maturity, they kind of start to lose all of their leaves and just really have the colas or flowers left. But I think the biggest concern, more than frost, is just any excess moisture during the harvest season could be potentially a site of where you'll start to get fungal growth. And once that happens in those colas, because of how tightly they're packed, it will just take out the entire inflorescence and then that's a huge loss on yield. And if you're harvesting those and you're putting them in a big bin together before they get drying, then they're going to be all contaminating each other. So, so just any sort of excess moisture is more of the fear than probably just having the frost itself, which it seems that they can, I mean, as I was talking about those trichomes on the flowers, those little tiny mushroom-like structures are where the cannabinoids are. So you could envision that if they were frozen, if they, like if they start to come off in the field, you're losing cannabinoid yield. Um, but the plant itself seems to tolerate some frost. And, and we have a new um, plant physiologist in the Department of Horticulture that's going to be starting soon. And he works in, in cold hardy crops. So I'll be sure to talk to him about looking in cold hardiness in hemp, which seems like it'll be important for Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, it should be. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and Shelby, that just brought up another thought as we're talking here, uh, learning more about the uh, essential oil side of hemp. You talked about you know, the excess moisture, the fungals. Have you noticed in any of your research plots or, or on your own, um, any other diseases that you've seen popping up that could be detrimental to the crop? Yeah. So in my, my two years of experience or two summers of experience so far, um, so with relation to insect pressure, um, during the growing season, there are two kind of main borers that are, are an issue. So the European corn borer seems to be kind of a problem throughout early July into mid-July. Um, it'll make these like it'll cluster the leaves together and kind of make a little webbing where it'll have a there'll be a caterpillar in there and you find it so you just want to <laughs> smoosh those whenever you find them but more detrimental to that is the Eurasian hemp borer which typically will bore into the stem of the plant and then everything above that point of where they burrowed in will die and that is actually the most problematic, so there's about three flushes of that life cycle of that Eurasian hemp borer, but the third flush happens right about now, and they'll burrow in right underneath where you have your flower forming, and then that site will collect moisture, and then it'll come in with the botrytis, which is the bud rot, and cause that um, flower to then rot. So it's kind of this like one-two punch with those two things working together at the end of the season. There are a lot of foliar diseases, so you'll see things like um, uh, there'll be, there's some white mold, powdery mildew. There's a lot of uh, leaf septoria. 
So you'll see these lesions on the leaves and it does seem to spread quickly. But what's interesting is around this time of year, even as the leaves are starting to defoliate, defoliate it's not super detrimental on the yield because you don't care about those leaves as long as it's not getting on the flowers. So really the things that come in, um, fusarium, things that might affect the flower at the end of the season are what you have to worry about. But the, we're getting a little bit of a handle on the, all of the different pathogens that attack the plants. The interesting thing is like, you still can't do very much about it because there's no products that you can use to deal with them. So you kind of only have to use cultural practices, which is trying to keep good airflow, keep your plants as dry as you can. And then when you see disease, cut it out immediately, remove it from your field and don't make a big pile of your plants at the end of the season while you're waiting for, to find a place to dry them. <laughs> so Shelby with, um, where, uh, with your research or where, um, uh, looking forward, uh, where are you headed with this? And I guess what's your crystal ball save for the market? We know people have had trouble getting rid of their product, uh, and that kind of thing. And, and maybe demand hasn't caught up with production yet, but, um, do you see demand increasing and, and maybe as we get some of these medical studies done, it, it does ramp up a little bit or what do you think from that standpoint? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is new to me, kind of doing the economic forecasting for a crop. It's not anything <laughs> that I have any formal training in. None of us do. I we mean, guess all, as well. all I can say is that I'm certain it will be uncertain for a while to come. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did see the first report uh, yesterday or something from, there's this hemp benchmark report that comes out every month and they were like, CBD prices are stabilizing, which I thought that's something, at least that there's not a downward trajectory. <laughs> However, we know that people are going to start harvesting soon, so we'll see. But I think that there's a few things that need to happen. I mean, right now we have very uncertain state-by-state -state regulation of this. So once things are supposed to happen where there's a federally approved program or, or everyone's operating under the same federally approved program, they'll kind of allow people to have an even playing field where we're not competing with states that have different types of testing um, requirements or some states are still using that delta 9 thc versus total thc which just makes things seem quite unfair however um, wisconsin right now our license is only good through october 31st of 2020 and wisconsin has not submitted its federal plan yet so that means after October 31st, we should not be growing any hemp in the state of Wisconsin until we have a new license. And I can tell you as a researcher, that makes me very nervous <laughs> because <laughs> that means I don't know what I'm doing after October 31st. Um, so, so across the board, kind of regulations need to be understood. They're not very good for the farmer right now, the way that they're set up. It's really like the farmer is more set up to fail than the processor or anyone else, which is not very motivating for a farmer to get into this then right now. And then things like the, D, um, the FDA needs to make a decision figuring out what products can indeed have uh, CBD or CBG in it. So right now it's, it's uncertain or it's illegal to actually sell food and drink products with CBD in it. Um, because of that APDLX, that FDA approved drug, because that exists, the FDA then has to kind of oversee all other CBD derived products. So they need to kind of give some guidance on how the rest of the industry can move forward with making more CBD products because the tinctures and the lotions and bath bombs, these types of things, because they're not food products, it's kind of, that's the end of where we can go with marketing this right now. You can't have any big companies making food and drink products with, with the cannabinoids. Um, another really important thing is also just figuring out with some of the other hemp derived products, like the grain products, if they're going to be able to be used as animal feed or nutrient supplements for animal feed. So there are indeed federally approved funding studies underway right now looking at feeding studies for um, cows and chickens and lambs at if they ingest either um, grain derived from from hemp or spent biomass derived from extracting hemp 
how much CBD and THC get into those animal-derived products just to make recommendations to the FDA of like, okay, how are we going to regulate this moving forward? So, you know, there's all these kind of loose ends that need to be tied up. And until they are, there's no way, I think, to really predict what's going to happen. The other thing is, right now, the grain and the fiber, well, particularly the fiber, lack in the infrastructure for process, processing it once it comes out of the field. But people are super excited about this side of things too. So I think that there's going to be more potential there. It's not going to be huge high dollar per acreage type of crop, but I think that it could have a lot more acreage. And because you can do a lot more with that product than just, you know, take a gummy, <laughs> um, that that might be that might open up a lot of new avenues for um, for both producers and processors. So stepping back just a second, when you mentioned about uh, with some of the the FDA rulings, we cannot have any sort of hemp in food or drink products for human consumption. Did some uh, places try that? Say. I, I very vividly remember a local brewery in La Crosse coming out with a hemp's hoarder, and then I do not think they were able to actually serve it. Did, did something, did some places experiment with putting it into food products and then they were told to take it out or not be able to even market it? Just an editor's note here before Shelby answers, uh, hemp grain used for food uh, or culinary cooking oil, for example, is currently allowed. However, when CBD is added to food products and sold as, say, CBD-enhanced food, that is not allowed currently. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that it kind of, it just depends on how much visibility that product saw. I mean, down here in Madison, there were certainly lots of, you know, little soda companies and things that were putting uh, CBD in, in products. And I don't, you know, I don't think the FDA has the bandwidth to like regulate all of these products. So I think if it was a bigger product or if someone informed them, then they would have been more able to like regulate or, or send a letter saying like, knock it off. I think they really are going on after products that have big medicinal claims. So if you're making a product and you're saying it cures cancer, the FDA is going to write you a letter and say, cease <laughs> and desist with this because there's no like evidence for this. So, um, yeah, I think if there are bigger products, if they're, you know, at least statewide in, in notoriety, then probably the FDA is coming after you. But if, if it's, you know, a tiny little like tea being served at your farmer's market, the, the FDA probably doesn't know about that. Um, but mostly they're going after these like bigger CBD companies on the internet that have big sweeping medicinal claims on their websites. We well, just thank Shelby Ellison from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Horticulture Department for joining us today on our uh, Cutting Edge podcast, a, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. And thanks for joining us, Shelby. Yeah, my pleasure.